All right, this dialogue that these Pharisees have with Jesus, they're trying to trap Jesus. And here's the trap. The Romans are occupying Israel, and the Romans are imposing a tax upon the Israelis, upon the Jews, and then that money goes back to the Roman Empire. And then, of course, the Jews don't like that. So imagine Russia conquering Ukraine and then forcing the Ukrainians to pay tax, Ukrainians to pay taxes to send the money back to Moscow. The Ukrainians would despise that, and they would probably try to kill tax collectors and all of that other stuff. And so this is the dynamic. The Pharisees asked Jesus, "Should we pay the tax or not?" We got you. We got you. Because if you say, yes, we should pay the taxes, then the Jews will stop following you. And if you say, no, we shouldn't, then the Romans will arrest you. We've got you trapped. This is the idea. Of course, Jesus is God, right? So he, he can read their mind. He knows exactly what they're up to. He knows it's malice. Quote, knowing their malice, Jesus says, you hypocrites and horrible wretches of human beings, etc., and then he goes on to resolve the situation by saying, show me a coin. So they show him a coin. Whose inscription on that? Caesar. Why is Caesar's inscription on the coin? Because that's the money printed in Rome and brought over on boats. And he's saying, well, then take it back. Take it back. It's Roman coins. Give them all their coins. Then they're fluxing and they don't know where to go from here. But it raises a much greater issue. And the other issue is this. Well, what is the relationship then between the Christian and the world? What is the relationship between the church and the government, etc.? And there's a whole lot of dynamics that go into those kinds of things. Very briefly, there are some things that are always uh, binding for us. The laws of nature, because God has set those, and then divinely revealed law. Divinely revealed law is what comes from the Bible. That's God's word. It is revelation from God. And so when God says, don't do something in the Bible, then you don't do it even if the civil authority says it's okay. The civil authority is wrong on that particular issue. But what if it's not, you know, a law of nature that's being broken or a divinely revealed law that's being broken? And it's a civil law that's been set. As long as the civil law is reasonable, then we need to follow it. So, for example, nowhere in the laws of nature nor in the Bible does it say what the speed limit should be on the two streets that are on either side of this property. So you and I get together and we elect people, and then those people elect, or those people figure out what the speed limit should be. It should not be 80 miles an hour, or people in their 20s will drive 80 miles an hour, and they will hit people and kill them. And so we make it 25 or something, so that we can try to get people in their 20s to drive 40. And then we will have a lot fewer casualties than that. And we're bound morally to follow those legitimate laws of the state kind of thing. But then it gets into other things, too, like where is our focus? Is it on the things of the world? Is it on God? Is it on the things of heaven? And so this gets into this. And then, well, what about the whole attraction to sin and to evil? And how do I deal with that? So I want to read this. This little sheet of paper comes out of my Magnificat. I want to read a couple of sentences introducing us to this particular dilemma about as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as somebody who is a son or a daughter of the Most High God and my destiny is eternal life with God, how do I think about the world and relate to the world and understand it? And so beginning with this, quote, Christ's response to the false dilemma put to him by the Pharisees reveals that, though we owe obedience to just laws and rightful authority, we must also give to God what belongs to God. 
And what belongs to God? Our very lives. The effects of original sin entice us to withhold some part of ourselves from God. And this is a lifelong struggle where we struggle to give God all of us. We keep wanting to hold back, keep things from God. And he knows what those things are, of course, right? Remember Cain and Abel and the two sons, first two sons of Adam and Eve. And Abel gives an offering to God and God's pleased. And Cain gives an offering to God and God's not pleased. Because he can see it's not your top 10%, Cain. You're giving me the blind and lame amongst your herd. I want the best of your herd to be in that 10%. And God knows everything, but Cain is struggling to trust him to give him everything. And so do we all, don't we? We struggle to give God our whole life, our reputation, the fear of our happiness, and all of these other things. But a Christian in the world, a Christian in the world is always going to struggle. But we need to recognize that our first priority is God. And if it is God, if our first priority is God, it's Jesus, it's eternal life and the next life, then it puts things in this world in perspective. This world is passing away. None of us will be here a hundred years from now. Most of us will not be here 50 years from now. This world is passing away. Your money is passing away. Your house is passing away. Your cars are passing away. Your reputation in this world is passing away. All of those things can be taken from you. And as long as you belong to God, none of it's passing away. Because you're not. I want to read this letter to Dionetus. I'm going to call him Dionetus. I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly. But Dionetus is a fake person that an anonymous person is writing to. So think of Bugs Bunny writing to Wiley Coyote. Okay, this kind of thing. So somebody's protecting his identity. This is 16, 1700 years ago. It's in the time of the Roman Empire. Christianity is illegal, depending on where you're at, how much that's enforced, etc. And he's writing this anonymous letter to an anonymous person. And then it's so popular, it gets circulated and it survives to this day. And he's writing about this dynamic of the Christian in the world. And this is the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean Sea, Western Europe, etc. Lots of different people and nationalities, etc. Quote, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet, there's something extraordinary about the lives of Christians. They live in their own countries as though they were passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, and yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, and all men persecute them. 
condemned because they are not understood. They are put to death but raised to life again. They live in poverty but enrich many. They are totally destitute but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor but that is their glory. They are defamed but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving a gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens, they are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for their hatred of the Christians. To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world, but their religious life remains unseen. The body hates the soul and wards against it, not because of any injury the soul has done it, but because of the restriction the soul places on its pleasure. Similarly, the world hates the Christians, not because they have done any wrong, but because they are opposed to its enjoyments. Christians love those who hate them, just as the soul loves the body and all the members, despite the body's hatred. It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together, and similarly, it is by Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place, and Christians also live for a time amidst perishable things, while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. Such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function, from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. He says a lot there. And he's saying Christians in this world are going to have a hard time because they're preparing for the next world. And they're preparing this world for the next world. And this world resents it. Like peevish children who do not want to be responsible. And the children rebel. So too do the people of this age and in every age. They rebel against anyone who comes along and says, stop sinning. Stop living selfishly for yourself. Stop living for only this world and live for the King of Kings. Live for eternal life. Live for heaven. If we live like that, it's as if everything in the world suddenly falls into perspective. We understand how we're supposed to behave in our marriage and in our family. We understand how we're supposed to behave in the workplace. We understand the value of money and how much it doesn't matter in the end. We aren't as worried about our physical health and how it's deteriorating and falling apart because it's all passing away anyway. The world, if we grip it in our hand and squeeze, it just goes between our fingers. The Lord is saying, let it go. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And you know what belongs to God? You. And all of you. 